Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your copies of the scripture this morning and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 4. In a moment, we will be reading verses 18 through 26. Exodus 4, verses 18 through 26. God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we need that lamp and that light now, don't we? In our world, in our lives, we need something that will light the way. And we know and we believe that that is God's word. Where else are we going to turn to find the light? What else will lead us on the path and the way but God's word? And without his word, I have very little to say this morning. It'd be over pretty quick. But thanks be to God that he has revealed himself to us. That we can open up the pages of scripture and know him. Hear him speak to us, even in a passage like Exodus 4. (laughs) You'll find out in a moment why I said that. (laughs) So let's read together, shall we? Exodus 4, beginning in verse 18. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together out of reverence and respect for his word? And after I finish verse 26, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God, because we are truly thankful Pray that our hearts would be filled with thankfulness to God today. Let's read together. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. The Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. And so Moses took his wife and his sons And had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. We receive your word, O God. We treasure up your commandments. Make our ears attentive to your wisdom. Incline our hearts to understanding as we call out for insight. As we raise our voice for understanding, as we seek for it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, may you grant 
us to understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever experienced the threat of death? I mean the threat of death from another person. There may be the threat of death, an illness or injury, where you might have been close to death. But I would dare say that many of us, if not most of us, if not all of us, have never been threatened by someone else with death. Where someone would say, I want to kill you. Yet the external threat to Christians must not be forgotten. If you go back through the history books, go back to Christianity from the beginning and trace it all the way to the present day, you will find Christians who have regularly, consistently, and repeatedly faced the threat of death from others. And not just faced the threat of death, they have been put to death for their faith. Dear brother and sister, it still goes on today. In what we might think of as our modern world, where we've advanced so much, so far, the threat of death is still there for many Christians in the world. How would you respond to the threat of death? What would you do? We would do well to remember what it says in Matthew 10, 28, when Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. How many of our dear brothers and sisters have faced the threat of death and had to remember those words? Do not fear a man who can merely kill the body but can do nothing to the soul. And so we come to our text this morning, and the threat of death is all over the place, isn't it? Moses was one who experienced the threat of death more than once in his life. In fact, we can go all the way back to the very beginning of his life. He experienced the threat of there even before he knew that he experienced the threat of death. As Pharaoh had commanded all of the male children to be executed, to be aborted as they were being born, Moses was spared by his family, by God. Forty years later, he faced the threat of death again, this time after he had killed an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew slave. And when it became known what he had done, it says in 2.15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. Two times under the threat of death, and each time, the threat of death was, was very real, but each time, Moses was able to escape. Now, 40 years later, Moses stands at the ripe old age of 80, and the Lord appears to him in a burning bush, calls for him to go back to Egypt, and after his encounter at the burning bush, Moses goes to his father-in-law, as we see here, his father-in-law Jethro, this priest of Midian. And Moses makes a request. He wants to go back and see whether his people, his brothers, are still alive. What kind of request is this? I believe this is an honest request. Moses is not trying to deceive Jethro, but his request goes to the heart of the oppression that his people were experiencing. They are under the threat of death. I want to see if they're still alive. I want to see how they are doing. I want to know if they've been preserved or if they are being destroyed. And while Moses has been out in the wilderness now for 40 years, the people of Israel were still suffering under the rule of Pharaoh. They were still being oppressed. They were still being treated harshly. 
Moses is a shepherd out in the wilderness while his kinsmen are undergoing the wrath of Pharaoh. And Jethro, how does he respond? He blesses Moses. He puts his peace upon Moses. He says, Moses, go in peace. Go in shalom, Moses. The only way that Moses would be able to go in peace was because the God of peace and the God of shalom was with him. So Jethro's request is far different from Labron's refusal. Do you remember, do you remember uh, that back in Genesis? Where Jacob wanted to go back to his homeland? He had married Leah. He had married Rachel. He wanted to leave Laban, and so he made this request to Laban over and over again, but continuing, Laban would not let him go back. Jethro has a very different answer now as Moses makes this request of him, saying, let me go. And Jethro says, go in peace. How also very different from Pharaoh, who when Moses would come and say, let, let the people of Israel go, would refuse. Jeth- Jethro has favor upon Moses and grants his request. And so the doors are open for Moses' return. And God is preparing the way. But there is one more important piece of information that is important for Moses to have. The Lord comes to Moses again, doesn't he, and speaks to Moses. This time it's a word of confirmation that he speaks to him. Moses, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Good news, Moses. You left Egypt under the threat of death, but you can go back now because those who are seeking to kill you, they're all gone. They're all dead. They are dead themselves. It's safe, Moses. Go back to Egypt. So Moses gathers his family, sets out for Egypt. It says he puts his wife and his sons on a donkey. Maybe there's a sense here where he's going back in humility, back into the land with his family. But notice what else? The end of verse 20. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. The staff of God, which would do miracles and wonders and signs. The staff of God that was to display the power of God. The staff of God that was to remind Moses that God was with him. That God's presence was attending to him as he went back into Egypt. Here, notice what it's called now. It's called the staff of God. This is God's staff. It was not for Moses to wield and use any way that he wants to. It's not meant to draw the people's attention to Moses. This staff was to be used to draw people's attention to God. To show them God's power and God's glory and God's greatness. So Moses goes back with the staff of God. A staff that just a few verses earlier had just been an ordinary shepherd's staff. Now is the staff of God. And here we come to a turning point in the story. Maybe it's here that we would want to breathe a sigh of relief. Moses is on his way. The threat of death is gone. No one is seeking Moses' life. Yes, it's true. The threat of man was not there, but there was a very different threat, a threat that brings a far greater reality and a threat that cannot and must not be be ignored. There is a greater fear than the fear of the threat of death that comes from man. It is the fear that comes with the holy God. I didn't finish Matthew 28 when I told you that before. Remember that verse I just said? What does the rest of the verse say? And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If the Lord appearing to Moses in the burning bush was not confirmation enough, our text continues to to drive this truth home. The Lord is not safe. I love how C.S. Lewis brings out this truth in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Here we have this exchange between two characters, one of the characters, Mr. Beaver, and another character, Susan. Mr. Beaver is telling Susan about Aslan, the great lion, 
And he says this, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. There is the Christ figure, Aslan, in the line, the Witch of the Wardrobe, which tells us that Jesus Christ, the Lord, isn't safe, but he's good. Who is the God that we worship? Do we think that our God is safe? Our God is not safe, but he's good. I fear that too many people worship the God of safety. God's highest desire in our life. As long as, as long as my people are safe, God says, right? No, what does God desire? He desires a holy people. And sometimes our holiness means that we will not be safe. The Lord tells Moses it is safe to go back to Egypt, but as Moses will find out, it is far from being safe. As the rest of our verses show us. But what is happening? What's happening in these verses? A distinct line is being drawn, and it depends upon which side of that line you are on. God here in our text, is, is drawing this line and he's saying, here is the line and the side of the line that you are on, whether you're on this side or that side, shows your eternal destiny. Where you will spend eternity depends upon where you are, which side of the line you are on. And so, as we go through these verses... Let's remind ourselves that eternity is on the line. Eternity is at stake this morning. Our eternal destiny is before us. And so what is your eternal destiny and what is it that determines your eternal destiny? What will you face for the rest of forever? These are the questions we cannot and must not ignore so number one this morning, as we think about eternity and the line that's being drawn, here's one side of that line. Number one, you can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful this morning, our outline. Eternal judgment and death are reserved for those disobedient to God. Eternal judgment and death are reserved for those disobedient to God. And if I was to put a qualifier on that, I would say for those who remain disobedient for those who remain defiant and for those who remain in their sin. So eternal judgment and death are reserved for those disobedient to God. The Lord speaks to Moses again. This is, remember, Yahweh speaking to Moses, giving him this direct revelation from himself. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. Remember, God had just given these miracles for Moses to do, and Moses was to go back to Israel. And he was supposed to do these miracles, these signs for Israel, but now God expands our understanding of these miracles, and he says these wonders and miracles are also to be done before Pharaoh. Pharaoh is to see these things, all these miracles that I have put in your power, We'll see that these miracles are to, to tell Pharaoh who God is. To show Pharaoh who God is. But how will Pharaoh respond? 
Will he say, wow, these are amazing. You must serve a great God. It's not what Pharaoh says. What does the Lord say? But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. The Lord will harden Pharaoh's heart. It will not be responsive to what the Lord says, to the word of the Lord. He will refuse to listen to God, all because the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. This is an action that God is taking. There's no denying that. I will do this. I will harden his heart, says the Lord. How can we be, this might, we might say? How can God do this? We might want to object. God, this isn't fair. You are hardening Pharaoh's heart. How can you expect him to obey? How can you judge him if you are the one who is hardening his heart? How do we respond? It's difficult sometimes for, under, for us to understand what's going on. But a few points for us to remember. First, we will read later and in multiple other places that Pharaoh also hardens his own heart. So while the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart, as he says here, Pharaoh will also harden his own heart. Pharaoh is responsible. He will be held to account. This is not God making Pharaoh a robot or doing something against Pharaoh's own heart. It's not something that goes against even Pharaoh's own will. This is a giving over to Pharaoh. God giving him over to his own sinful desires, to his own sin. Second, does not God have the right to do with his own creation what he wants to do? Who are we to limit God and say, God can't do this with his creation? Sorry, God, that's off limits. You can't do that. What does God say? I created that. That's mine. I own it. In fact, that's what, that's what Paul says, right? Paul says, you are a little lump of clay. Would you say to the great potter, the great molder of the clay, why did you make me like this, God? How preposterous. If you were holding that lump of clay in your hand and that lump of clay said that to you, what would you say? Forget you. Third, what is God telling us by saying that he hardened Pharaoh's heart? He is saying that everything that is about to take place, the exodus of Egypt, the deliverance of his people, is all according to his sovereign hand. He is orchestrating everything. God will accomplish his plan, his way, by his power, and for his glory. It will not be the will of man that determines the plan. And it's not like God does not know what's going to happen. God is not going to be surprised by the events that take place. No, he is causing the events that take place. God's sovereign plan does not make us question what God is doing. It gives us assurance that what is happening is exactly what God wants to happen. Would we, would we trust in God's justice even if we don't completely understand God's justice? Would there ever be anything in our lives where we say, I don't understand that. I don't completely comprehend it, but that's God. God is one who we cannot completely comprehend, completely understand. Would we trust in God's justice, in God's judgment, in God's ways? If you are going to question and say, well, I don't believe that God would do this. I don't believe that God would harden Pharaoh's heart. What you're doing is you're trying to rip control out of God's hand. Is God in control? Is he the one who's orchestrating everything? And 
And if you rip control out of God's hand, where does it stop? I'll tell you where it stops. It doesn't stop. Truth be told, we want God to be in control of everything. Because if he's not in control of everything, he's not in control of anything. Is God sovereign over your life? Is God sovereign over the life of your kids, your grandkids, the ones you love? Is God orchestrating everything for his plan? Is God really in control? We can't say to the creator God, to the great potter, the great sculptor, why have you made me like this? And guess what? We never win the argument with God that life isn't fair. <laughs> Do you realize that? What's fair? What's fair is when you sin against God, when you sin against an infinite and holy God, you deserve an infinite punishment for your sin. The only reason why you are here today, the only reason why I am here today is because of God's mercy and grace. We lose the argument of fairness with God. Pharaoh's hardness of heart did not come without a warning. Moses, now the prophet of God, right? He's saying, thus says the Lord, was to speak to Pharaoh and so as Moses says, thus says the Lord, it comes with all of God's authority, all of God's power. This is the word of God. This is important, Pharaoh. Do not miss this message. The Lord of the universe is saying to you, let my son go that he may serve me. What's going on here? This is a battle for lordship. Who is Lord over these people? Is Pharaoh Lord over them or is Yahweh Lord over them? Who do they serve, Pharaoh or God? For Pharaoh, to let them serve anyone else would be for him to deny his own lordship, his own power, and his own authority. Can you understand then why Pharaoh would say, no, I'm not going to let these people go. They are underneath my lordship. They serve me. But then the Lord... The Lord tells Pharaoh why he is to let them go. Why they are to serve him. God says this, Israel is my firstborn son. Do you see what you're doing, Pharaoh? You are attempting to kill God's firstborn son. Pharaoh was attempting to rule over Israel by oppressing the Israelites with hard labor. The firstborn son is crucial because the firstborn son bears the image of his father, the likeness of his father. And so what is Pharaoh doing? Pharaoh was distorting, damaging, and even destroying the very image of God by how he was treating Israel. Israel, as God's firstborn son, was to reflect his sovereign rule and reign over the world, but this was not happening under the dominion of Pharaoh. And so God threatens Pharaoh. God says, Pharaoh, if you continue to do this over my son, if you continue to not let them go, I will kill your firstborn son. He will kill the one who is supposed to continue Pharaoh's rule and reign over the kingdom. And what is God saying? He's saying, Pharaoh, you are the anti-image. You are the one going against the Lord. You are seeking to destroy my image, and you will be judged for that, and the judgment of God will fall upon you because you refuse to obey the word of the Lord.
God is saying, Pharaoh, your son is not going to rule. My son is going to rule. Your son is going to come to an end. My son will go on and will live. And his dominion and his rule and his reign will be over everything and everyone and it will last forever. What is God doing here? He's foreshadowing the tenth and final plague that will fall upon Egypt. Unless we think that this judgment was temporary or merely for a time, the judgment that falls upon all who disobey God and remain in their sin is death and an eternity under God's wrath and judgment. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, or Romans 2, 5 says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is the judgment that I pray that you do not know. I don't want anyone to know this kind of judgment. I don't want anyone to be underneath the wrath of God. I don't want anyone to have the wrath of God stored up for them on the day of God's righteous judgment when that is revealed. And so I pray that you would not remain in your sin. I pray that you would not remain hard-hearted towards God, but that you would see how it's God's patience toward you that is meant to bring you to repentance, to turn from your sin and turn to Him. This is why we, brothers and sisters, speak the truth and love to each other. so that we are not deceived by the deceitfulness of sin, so that our hearts, hearts are not hardened. Hebrews 3, verse 12 says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So, do not harden your hearts today. Not like Pharaoh who remain in his disobedience. Today is the day to look to God, repent and turn from your sin, and find salvation where? In God's firstborn son. Let's think about this for one more moment. God's firstborn son. We read this in Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I what? I called my son. There it is again. Here is a continuing confirmation that Israel is God's son. But as we continue to trace this theme of God's son throughout the Bible, we get to who? We get to the son, the son of God, the firstborn son who is no one other than Jesus Christ himself. In fact, what does Matthew say? Matthew quotes Hosea 11 and says this. This is Matthew 2, 14 through 15. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Who was this child? Who is this firstborn son now? Who is this true Israel now? It's Jesus Christ. He is the firstborn son. Not that he is created, but he is the firstborn who has relational priority with the Father. It's here we find Jesus, the true Son of God, who prevailed and obeyed even where the first Israel failed and disobeyed God. Here is the true Son of God who perfectly reflected the rule and reign of God over all the earth. Here is the true Son of God who is rightly to be confessed as Lord. And those who confess and believe that Jesus is the true Son of God, it is they themselves that God gives the right to become children of God. You see that it's Jesus Christ as the Son of God 
who makes it able for us to be in God's family, to be us, us to be children of God. So we flee from this eternal judgment and we run to Christ. And really it leads us to our next point. Number two, eternal grace and life are reserved for the blood-covered people of God. Eternal grace and life are reserved for the blood-covered people of God. Eternal grace and life are reserved for the blood-covered people of God. This is one of the more mysterious events in the whole book of Exodus. We have been following this line. On the one side, those who are enemies of God, like Pharaoh and Egypt, the the people that he's leading, but there's another side. On one side, like we've said, There are those who continue in rebellion and sin. And we might think at this point, well, it's pretty easy to pick out the teams, right? So like one side, you got Egypt. They're on one side, one team, Pharaoh. He's like their captain. And on the other side, you got Israel. And and Yahweh, the Lord, he's, he's the captain over that team. And Moses, maybe even, right? And on one side, you get judgment and death, and on the other side you get grace and life. Maybe you think Israel, Yahweh is safe for you, but not for Egypt. But not so fast. Here's Moses now and his family at a lodging place as they are returning to Egypt and were told something very peculiar. The Lord met them on the way. The Lord met them there. And what did the Lord want to do? He sought to kill him. It's interesting. It's a little ambiguous on who it is that the Lord was seeking to kill. He just says him. I think that him is best referred to as Moses. Some might say it's Gershom, which is Moses' firstborn son, but I think in the context that this is Moses. So think about that. The Lord met them, met him, and was seeking to kill him. Wait a minute. Hadn't the Lord just called and commissioned Moses as his servant to rescue the people? Hadn't God just chosen Moses for this epic task? Hadn't the Lord given Moses the words to speak? Why all of a sudden now is the Lord seeking to put Moses to death? Did the Lord change his mind? No. It appears that Moses was in disobedience to God. But it gives us pause for one moment. It gives us pause that the Lord was seeking to kill Moses, one of the greatest men in the whole of the Old Testament. One of the most monumental figures. If you were to pick out people who were saved in the Old Testament, Moses would be one probably at the top of the list, just about. But the Lord wanted to kill Moses? What had Moses done? Well, it was what he hadn't done. It was what he failed to do. Moses had failed to follow the covenant that God had made with Abraham in Genesis 17. It was there in Genesis 17 that the Lord told Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you a sign for your covenant. You're going to be in relationship with me. You and your offspring and your people, they're going to be in relationship with me. And so I'm going to give you a sign so that you know that you're in relationship with me. And that sign is circumcision. You circumcise your male children on the eighth day after they are born to show that they are a part of my covenant people, and they're in. And this is where Moses had failed. He had not circumcised his son, most likely his firstborn son. 
circumcision was the marker that set apart those who were in the covenant community of God and those who were not. How could Moses, who had failed to obey God in showing that his family was a part of the covenant community, how could he be one to deliver the people of God? The short answer is he couldn't. I think warning here for us Moses, you were so close. Moses, you were right there. You had seen the burning bush. The Lord had talked to you. The Lord had called you and commissioned you. But Moses, you were still disobeying. Moses, you still weren't doing what the Lord wanted you to do. Moses, the judgment of God was coming upon you. He needed God's grace and God's life that could only come from God. So close, but yet still the Lord wanted to kill him. It makes me think of Matthew 7. When Jesus says, there will be many on that day who say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do all sorts of miracles in your name? And what does the Lord say? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You were disobedient. You did not obey. You did not follow me. You did not put your faith in me. You did not know me. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. You were close. But you weren't saved. Moses graciously has his wife step in for him. Cuts off her son's foreskin. Takes that foreskin, places it on Moses' feet. And what does it say? The Lord let him alone. And he left him alone. And she cried out this exclamation. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. God spared Moses' life. Well, this is kind of weird, isn't it? What's going on? Why this event? This is the very first Passover. Why would I say that this is the first Passover? Because you can see it here in verse 25. Then Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. That word touched could also be translated struck. And in fact, that's the same word that's used in Exodus 12, 22, when they were to touch the lintel and the doorposts of their homes with the blood of the sacrificed lamb. Same word. Used in both cases. In both cases, the blood being applied to something or someone. And in both cases, the blood is applied and the Lord relents and death is avoided. It was the blood that averted the wrath and judgment of God. It was the blood smeared on Moses that saved him. And how do we know that blood was involved in the circumcision? Because that's what Zipporah says. He says she says, you are a bridegroom of blood. Blood because of the blood that she had applied to Moses. And now there is this exclamation. How are we to take this exclamation? Is it an exclamation of disgust? Is it an exclamation of bitterness? Is it an exclamation of failure on Moses' part for failing to obey the covenant of God? Or, Or could it be a cry of delight and joy? I think this is... 
a good way of reading this, that Zipporah is saying this in great delight. You are a bridegroom of blood to me, a bridegroom of blood that has been brought back from the dead. A bridegroom of blood now where her marriage that was threatened to be terminated by her husband's disobedience was completely restored and renewed. And what resulted from the covering of blood upon Moses, it was grace and life. It was being accepted in the covenantal people of God. Moses did not receive the wrath and judgment of God he rightly deserved, but instead he was given life. And it was Moses as the bridegroom of blood who points forward to another bridegroom of blood. This bridegroom of blood, however, obeys where Moses disobeyed. This is the one who, because of his perfect obedience, did not need to have blood applied to him. No, rather, it becomes his atoning blood that needs to be applied to sinners like us. It is the bridegroom there that undergoes the wrath and judgment of God that we deserve so that we can live, so that we can receive God's eternal grace and life as those who are now covered by His blood, as those who are now circumcised by a circumcision that is made without hands, that we are now those who are marked out by God as His people, as it says in Colossians chapter 2. Here is what it says in Colossians 2, verse 1. In him, that's in Christ, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were once And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities by putting them to open shame, by triumphing over them in him. This is now the circumcision that we need. A circumcision that comes from Christ. A circumcision that says that puts off the body of flesh, puts off the body of sin. We're no longer under the domain of sin, no longer controlled by sin. But now what? We've been made alive together with Jesus Christ through faith. It's our faith in Him, in what He's done, in His sacrifice that saves us. And now what? We're marked out as His people. And now, there is a new marker. It's not a marker that saves us, but it's a marker of obedience. It's baptism. Baptism now becomes that sign, right? Isn't that what he says here? Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised in, with him through faith in the powerful working of God, that's why we baptize people, to show them, to show the internal work that's happened in them, the internal work that they've been circumcised, a circumcision that happens in the heart. And now we baptize because there's a proclamation that's saying, this person is in the covenant community. This person now has received the eternal grace and life from Jesus Christ. This person is one who is bought with the blood of Christ, covered with the blood of Christ, cleansed by the blood of Christ with a great proclamation. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, but you have not been baptized, I encourage you, talk with me, talk with Eric. Say, I need to be baptized. I need to to show, I need to make this proclamation that I am aligned with Jesus Christ. I am covered by his blood. That I am part of this new covenant of Jesus Christ, a new covenant that's happened through His blood. And to become one of us now as those who say, 
we are in this covenantal relationship with God. We are in this marriage now with our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our head. He is our husband. He is the bridegroom that we have received back from the dead. And so we cry out to Jesus with great joy, you are a bridegroom of blood to us. And the covenant that we are now in is a covenant of great sacrifice. Sacrifice where God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, gave him up so that we might have God's favor and grace. And so the line has been drawn. It separates eternal judgment and death for those who remain disobedient to God and eternal grace and life for those who are bathed in the blood of Jesus. Where are you this morning? Are you under the wrath of God or do you know the favor of God that comes through Jesus Christ? Are you separated from God by your sin or do you have access to God as one cleansed by the blood of Jesus? Are you fragmented and continually damaged by your sin or are you united and whole in Jesus Christ? Close with these verses from Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Is this the redemption that you know? Is this the redemption that you rejoice in? Is this the bridegroom? that you are married to, that you love, that you submit to, and that you live for. Let's pray.